Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit, the horror movie review podcast for horror fans and fanatics alike. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, delivering horror movie reviews and discussions of both classic and current films every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for your twisted pleasure. Please be aware that episodes may include spoilers, and as always, I hope you enjoy. Daily Horror Habit is back from its summer hiatus. Did you miss my horrifying ramblings? Well, I for one am excited to get back to bringing y'all horrifying reviews and guest discussions every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the foreseeable future. And what better way to return than with continuing Daily Horror Habit's series review of the Saw franchise as I'm once again joined by my good pal Bernie, who agreed all those months ago to tackle these films with me. And today we're putting our noses to the grindstone and powering through the seventh and definitely not final Saw film, Saw, the final chapter also known as Saw 3D. Currently streaming on HBO Max, Saw The Final Chapter sees director Kevin Grudert of Saw 6 Prestige return, as well as writers Marcus Dunstan and Patrick Melton, the writers behind Saw 4, 5, and 6. The film follows Bobby, played by Sean Patrick Flannery, who has made a lucrative career out of falsely claiming to have survived a jigsaw trap, who finds himself in Detective Hoffman's jigsaw-inspired trap. Running concurrently to this is Jigsaw's ex-wife and collaborator Jill, played once again by Betty Russell, telling the police that Hoffman is the Jigsaw killer, which further closes the walls around him. And without further ado, Bernie, welcome back to the show. Appreciate it, man. I'm glad to be back on this. Been a, a long time coming. Uh, I guess I wouldn't have wanted to take a break of this length in between, but you know, I don't think uh, I don't think that there was any other sort of movie that we could return to with other than this and that just kind of easing back into things you know this is definitely not uh one of the strongest entries in the uh in the saw series but i think it's a fun one that we will uh, we'll have some fun dissecting and uh maybe trying not to bash too hard but i have a feeling that we'll won't have any trouble bashing this one a little bit some constructive criticism for sure yeah i mean they say that you know you save the best for last and i guess that's why they made two extra movies after this final chapter <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I certainly, you know, it, it's, as you mentioned, it's not the, uh, I guess, what the, the best way of putting this, it's not the best movie in the series, but it certainly does have its moments that, uh, you know, do make it live up to the, the soft franchise name. Yeah, I think that there's definitely entertainment to be found here. It might not always be uh, what the director and writers had in mind, but it's entertaining nonetheless. Uh, but so saw the final chapter is a film that like a lot of horror series they sort of run their course and this one has certainly been running its course longer than a majority of other series but we find ourselves in the final entry kind of moniker attached to the title which is clearly not the case because we still have to talk about jigsaw and then of course spiral from the book of saw um but what really sets this one up apart i find right off the bat from the other saw films is the 3d nature of it right is that this is the only Saw film that was filmed in 3D, and that was the major selling point. And so, I guess in starting, I'm just curious, like, for you, are you a fan of 3D in films? Do you tend to prefer them? Do you get something out of them? Uh, you know, I, I think as anyone who went to Disney World when they were a kid, <laughs> Terminator in 3D, and that was one of the gnarliest things ever, right? Um, right. This certainly, I appreciated the angle that they were taking. I just think that uh, it's a little bit, this is a series that you, I don't think you need to enhance the visuals any more than they already are. Um, so mm. while generally speaking, I think there's certainly a place for 3D in films. I don't think this really hit the nail on the head that they were looking for. What, what about yourself? Yeah, I'm typically not a huge fan of 3D. If I'm being honest, 3D in a lot of ways, it kind of feels gimmicky. I mean, there are definitely instances where it has its moments and it works. Um, but for me, I'm usually not a fan of 3D. And I think also a big problem, which I kind of was doing a little research into saw the final chapter, is all the concessions they had to make to allow the 3D to work. And that is always an instance where I'm like, well, if you have to make certain concessions and cut things and you're having all this difficulty, is the real payoff going to be there by making the choice to shoot the entire thing in 3D, right? I mean other than it being sort of like a marketing gimmick in a lot of ways to be like, hey, look, you you thought you were tired of these movies? This is the first movie that you can watch for the Saw series that's in 3D and it's stuff's coming out at you and all this stuff. But if it doesn't actually enhance the quality of what you're watching, it just feels like a marketing gimmick. Um, and it's very telling, I think, that the director even said in an interview with this um, popular mechanics website 
he talks about the idea of just, or the reality of just how difficult it is to compose a shot in 3D, um, as opposed to shooting in a traditional like 2D camera lens and whatnot. And I think that's very telling with a lot of sort of the presentation issues that I have with uh, Saw the Final Chapter. Not to say that these movies have always been the best looking movies, but there's sort of, and we touched upon this in the last few episodes, that there's been this sort of cheapening quality to the Saw films and that they've begun to look progressively worse and worse the farther into the series we get to the degree that I think this one is almost the worst of the entries in terms of the way it looks. And we'll probably detail a few other ways in which it's the worst uh, moving forwards. No, I would agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, I I don't want to jump too far ahead into this, but there were certain kills that I imagine, you know, they look a lot cooler through that 3D lens than just in a normal way. Um, But yeah, I, I, I would echo, you know, most of the sentiment that you just said there. Yeah, and you know, I had heard a lot. So I'll be honest, like I went into this with really, really low expectations because of all the kind of just uh, mud flinging that I'd seen about it online and whatnot. Um, But I was taken aback even more so just because I enjoyed the previous Saw film, right? Saw 6, which, I mean, when you look at all these different horror franchises, what sixth entry is usually one of the better ones. And for me, uh, Gruder's sixth film, I really enjoyed and I thought that it was more inventive than the previous two. It really capitalized on creative kills. It was composed well. It actually looked better. It doesn't have nearly as much of that, um, well, definitely still had some elements of it, but this sort of like soap opera look to the films that they've all developed. This one though, I thought that again, like more creative, more brutal in a way that was surprising for a sixth entry. So I was really surprised at just how bad (laughs) the final chapter was considering that he showed a genuine, a genuine sort of like refreshing on what made the original three films so stand out from the rest of the franchise and just and I guess for the period that these movies were released in just the things that made this series fresh and a standout from horror at the time in general I mean what were your kind of expectations going into the seventh and definitely not final Saw film I mean again to, to your point I think the deeper you get into any kind of a series, whether it's horror or not, a sixth or seventh entry is typically not going to be the height of it. Um, Certainly there was a drop off, as you mentioned, from the sixth to the seventh movie. But what it kind of also made me think is maybe the budget went so much into actually developing it into a 3D movie that they were lax about certain other features that really was the bedrock for why folks were watching Saw. Um, And you know, I was, I we we watched it together, and one of the things that I noticed, although it's certainly gory, there wasn't as much blood as there normally is, and you would think there would be an overload of blood, kind of towards the, end, as you get deeper and deeper into these kinds mm-hmm. of things that normally happens with horror movies. So the the way that you kind of phrase it at the beginning, I am starting to think that maybe the the budget was just misused and that's why there's you know again so many negatives that we we took out of it than than positives yeah and also i mean to your point like this was the most expensive of the saw films out of any of them like this was a 17 million dollar budget i believe and a majority of them i believe did not go above 10 a majority of the time and i mean it's very telling that the one that has the most expensive budget it's not shocking that, yeah, clearly that all went to the 3D nature of it. And given how problematic the shoot was and all these things to get it to actually play out the way that they wanted it to and actually kind of take Saw to the next level, you can see a lot of the sort of shortcuts they have to have. And I got to say, like, a lot of the practical work that I think for a majority of the films has been solid in terms of just the gore and the blood and all these things. Here, it looks worse probably than it ever has, which... Again, like the fact that you are making a seven saw film and you're like, well, we can make certain concessions here in favor of the way it looks. It's like, well, if you want to capture this movie like it's never been captured before, you can't in in a more expensive manner. How are you going to make cuts to the quality of the practical work and all those things that really drive these movies? I mean, that's the only reason why anybody goes to see Saw. I guess maybe the super hardcore fans unlike us are like, well, we want to learn about Hoffman and the story and like. The story has gotten progressively worse, I think, through these movies um, in terms of like that overarching narrative about Hoffman and Jill and all of this sort of like who's Jigsaw's new apprentice and all that stuff. Like 
those elements have not been interesting to me for probably three or four films now at this point. Um, and so to see them get so many or see such a large portion of the runtime devoted to that um, was disheartening, but also it kind of just shows perhaps they don't necessarily have a great understanding of the direction that they should be taking this in. And I think that it's also worth noting that this had a troubled production because Grudert was actually supposed to um, direct Paranormal Activity 2 at the time. And that movie was supposed to release on the same day as the saw the final chapter. And so Twisted Pictures decided, well, we're going to pull a clause in his contract and be like, listen, you can't do that movie. You have to return to work on this instead because they didn't they thought that it would sort of derail paranormal activity. So he came back to Saw very reluctantly, clearly like this Saw 6 was clearly the stepping stone for him into getting to a more reputable or a more profitable franchise. Um, But also, well, yeah, I would say more profitable. But in terms of just like, well, do you want to have the sequel to one of the most uh, profitable horror movies of all time, Paranormal Activity, under your belt? Or do you want to do another Saw movie and supposedly the final Saw movie? Um, and so it kind of just shows like him coming to a project reluctantly. He showed up and then like two weeks before filming, he tried to rewrite the entire script with the writers and they have to cut all of these things and elements and whatnot and make all these concessions to the degree that it's like, okay, clearly this is not a, uh, a marriage made in heaven or a match made in heaven in terms of just like moving forwards with Saw and just is very telling of why this movie feels like such a mess in addition to basically kind of looking like shit a lot of the time. No, I mean, I, I echo that. I I was not aware that they tried to rewrite the script two weeks uh, before they started shooting, but um, that honestly is my biggest gripe with this film, ironically enough, is the actual script and the storyline because to say that it makes no fucking sense would be... <laughs> Uh, and again, you know, giving that context that does put a lot more perspective into to how this all played out and why, again, this ended up being as, you know, again, I, I don't want us to, to continue saying that this is a poor movie throughout, but it, unfortunately it really was. <laughs> it's the reality. Yeah, it's certainly not the, the best quality saw that we've seen. Um, to, I mean, to kick it off, though, how did you like that opening scene? Um... To be honest, I was, I I'm pretty mixed on it, but it because here's the thing, right? That first trap, it's the probably the largest set piece they've ever had in a Saw movie, right? It's these two people that are in a store display, and there's two guys that are strapped to this machine with saw blades, and then there's a woman dangling above them. Basically, she's getting low, or the saw blade is rising. Either these guys can push the saw blades into one another to hurt the other one, or they can work together and have the saw blade stay in the middle so it saws this woman in half. And I think that the scope of it was very ambitious, right? The idea that I think they had to have like 400 extras for that scene and it's kind of got all these onlookers looking into this window display. But then when you start to get into the sort of the morality of it, it's definitely probably the nastiest instance of a trap in terms of just the morality that's tied to it, right? I mean, that's always been an element of these films, but with this, it was just so, uh, it seemed like just personal and just like gleefully misogynistic in a lot of ways, right? Because it's these two guys end up being, they are dating the same woman and she's playing off of them and all these things and like convincing them to steal or something like that. And it was like, basically it was kind of just like slut shaming the trap, right? And it's kind of like, what is the general point of, like, is there really a victim other than heartbreak or something like that, right? I mean, seeing where Saw started out with the first film and like, okay, we're going to torture pedophiles and people that are destroying people's, like literally destroying people's lives, uh, literally hurting other people, like physically, and all these things are, uh, one of them I think is a drug addict that's, uh, or a drug dealer that's destroying lives and killing people or something. But just to go from that to it's kind of like, yeah, it's black and white. Like, yeah, sure. I can get behind a pedophile getting tortured to death. But now it's like, well, three people are engaging in this whatever kind of relationship. And it's just like, how did we go from that to this? It just seems like two very different extremes that is just like kind of gleefully nasty to a female character that it's like, well, yeah, historically, 
women are getting tortured and murdered and stuff in all these movies and it's like to to not really show a lot of evolution from the beginning of the franchise to this it's kind of like well we're kind of taking a step backwards in terms of not only creativity but just like really so really playing into that sort of belief that it's like well yeah the saw movies are getting progressively nastier for the sake of it rather than having ever having any sort of like investment in any of these characters at all yeah no i would agree with you and the the one thing that i would say as a caveat to that is and a uh, or at least our uh, one of our perspectives of it is like the claim to fame version i would mm. mention and that, that was a piece that i was really frustrated about when i saw it originally and then when we saw it together uh, a few days back uh, the people who were watching this they weren't trying to necessarily help they were all on their phones trying to I mean, I don't know what in 2010, what the social media <laughs> was it Twitter, Facebook, whatever, whatever. Um, but they were posting that on social media rather than helping. So I guess maybe that was like, you know, the director's way of opening up that this is this is the theme of the movie is shifting rather mm-hmm. than it's just a bunch of, you know, 400 schmucks in New York or wherever that <laughs> you know, were able to help those folks. Um, but I would agree. I mean, I think it's such a big deviation from you know one of the you know you you alluded to it earlier one of the drug dealers that got killed in those opening scenes he killed hoffman's sister he raped hoffman's Mm -hmm. sister right and that was kind of one of the genesis of his storyline this has no nothing no actual connection outside of maybe what i just mentioned there that is a uh, a recurring issue in this film too is that it feels it is literally a series of death scenes but none of a majority of the characters are not connected in the first half of the film it's kind of just like one-off trap scenes and i mean this film boasts that it has the most kills out of the entire series and i think there's 11 something traps but at the same time a lot of those don't have any further significance than showing off a degradation of the practical effects and practical work like we've been talking about less creative traps and again, like the gore and stuff looks awful. Like it looks like cartoon blood spraying everywhere. And also like when that, uh, when the woman in that first trap gets uh, sawed in half, like her intestines fall out and it looks like just like sausages and stuff like that. Like it looks, it looks like somebody made this like in their backyard with their buddies in terms of the quality of the practical effects. But I think going from that, we should mention also just the main narrative of this film that runs concurrently again to Hoffman and Jill's story is that there's this guy that has been falsely profiting off of a supposed victimhood, right? He claims that he was a jigsaw victim. He was not. And I actually really like that idea because again, you have to be, this film has to reflect the fact that these movies have been going on for a number of years, right? The sort of general conversation and general public knowledge of jigsaw. It's like, yeah, you could see somebody having a support group for people that survived and that's kind of a cool angle that I think, again, is they're re, they're not retreading on a familiar beat. And that was an element that I liked so much about Saw 6, right? They have that sort of the healthcare angle. Again, it wasn't just another drug dealer, pedophile, or murderer, or what have you. It was another morality angle that was tied into sort of the general or social consciousness of kind of like our real world. And I like this idea of the idea that, okay, enough people have survived how do they go on living after this traumatic event? There is also the idea that like this is this series is set in a very ugly world filled with the majority of ugly people, right? So yeah, I could see somebody saying, sure, I survived and now I'm going to profit and gain fame from saying that I survived. Of course, he didn't do any of those things. So he's exploiting others' trauma and grief and whatnot. And I think that narratively speaking, that feels refreshing compared to the rest of the f- series and the films that came before it. And also leads you down a lot of paths that if you tie into that and literally him becoming a victim himself to save others, I think could potentially be pretty interesting. So it's just a shame that they're not able to capitalize on any of that in a meaningful way throughout the entire course of the film. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it, it goes to show it just, everything was so fragmented in this that again, you, you mentioned it, that they're, this has the most death scenes apparently or the most traps and it's like yeah outside of maybe two 
None mm. of them are really memorable. They're just kind of your run-of-the-mill, it seemed like, death scenes. Um, but I think most importantly, there's some sort of... I mean, I, I can't say this for all those Saw movies, but you have some sort of an attachment to certain characters. Mm. I don't think we give a shit about any of the people. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's kind of like what I was saying about all those beginning traps, right? We're not given any... None of the, a majority of these characters just straight up do not live throughout the course of the trap or the film. So it's like they're introduced, we're given their sort of background, and then they're immediately killed off and they move on to the next set of victims that have no connection. At least in the previous films, that was a recurring issue as well. But at least they all had some sort of connection to one another. This, it's just like random people. So why do I give a shit in the long run? And I mean, that comes back to one of the kills that I think is actually pretty cool, but it is definitely an example of the film being so fragmented and that being uh, the uh, the deceased member from uh, Lincoln Park making a cameo, Chester Bennington, who randomly makes a cameo, fine, whatever. And the trap itself, I think, is pretty clever, right? It's this idea that this guy is literally glued to a car seat and he has to reach up and grab a lever, but to do so... He has to like rip his skin off basically to free himself. Otherwise, the car is going to accelerate and it's going to drop on somebody, drop on a, one of his friend's faces. It's going to accelerate and then rip one of his friend's arms and jaw off that's attached to chains. And then finally, the car will run into another friend that's like uh, fastened to a garage door. This very elaborate set piece that's very brutal and whatnot, except again, like. They said, I think the justification for this trap is that they're all racist or something. And it's like, okay, that's fair enough. But at the same time, you're like, okay, none of these characters are connected to the rest of the narrative at all. This is just a random kill scene. So yeah, it's an impressive bit of practical work in a film that's largely unremarkable in that department. But at the same time, like, what does this have to do with anything other than just saying like, okay, cool, you can kill all these people. Wouldn't it be so much cooler if we actually were invested in this more than like, that was a cool 30 seconds of blood or gore or something like that? Right, no, I would agree with you. I mean, later on, that scene where that happens does become, uh, not I wouldn't necessarily say a pivotal part of the movie, but it certainly does play a role throughout the rest of the movie, like the actual junkyard where this happens. Mm -hmm. The setting. Right, but again, to your point, I mean, outside of like, you know, I think everyone loves Chester Bennington and seeing him in that was pretty cool. But yeah, you, I mean, I don't think the, the more that there's blood and guts or the, like those kind of scenarios that happen, but they're completely irrelevant to the actual story, the mm. more I think confused people were because again, this is the seventh series. Are these people that have been in traps before? Is there any kind of relevant connection right and it's it there really isn't um so i think even though to your point it's a really cool scene there's just so many more questions that get asked after that happens that again it detracts from the actual whatever the the message of the movie it really is well this kind of leads into my next issue with the film in terms of just again like how disorganized the entire thing feels this film is notable i would say for bringing back several characters that have been in previous films, right? The most notable one, of course, is gonna be uh, Dr. Gordon from the original Saw, right? The movie opens with that, with him escaping, he cauterizes his leg on like a steam pipe, and then Jigsaw finds his body. And getting to see him come back, like, cool, that's a nod to the original. It's cool that we get to have somebody from the OG one return and have a somewhat, uh, early on, he doesn't have much of a role in the film, but it's just cool to get to see somebody again. And it's like, yeah, this is the seventh film, character we haven't seen in a number of years and whatnot. Um, so they were able to do that and bring him back. And yet when we go to the, um, what is it? The AA support group and get to see a couple of survivors from past saw games, they're people that like, there's no reason you should remember them, right? They're not, they're never people that tie into the larger narrative. It's just people that sort of did the unthinkable to survive a trap and they did survive. And yet they're in the movie for probably five seconds, and then they cut to something else and we never hear from them again. And they were never significant players to begin with as a whole. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if you can bring back Dr. Gordon, why can't you bring back somebody that's maybe more prevalent? Yeah. Granted, there aren't a terrible amount of them that still are alive at this point, but at the same time, you would think that they would be able to bring people back in a way that 
was a little more compelling. And even Cariel is, I think, is underutilized in this. He's in the opening, he's in the AA meeting, he shows up, and he's got like three lines, I think. And then he disappears until the last 10 minutes of the movie during a twist, which we'll get into in a bit. But it all just seems like a very scatterbrained approach to it. And again, this is very telling of sort of just the rewrite process that happened and how that was last minute and trying to cram all these ideas into the film. And then all of a sudden they're like, hey, guess what? You can't make this into two films. This is the final film, supposedly. Um, So in that regard, again, like it just it's it sounds smart on paper or it sounds at least somewhat refreshing from what they did in the previous film. And yet in actual execution, it's just all over the place and it results in not even really frustrating, just just poor filmmaking in general. Right. I mean, Donnie Wahlberg's son survived, what was it, the second or third movie? You yep. easily had him as a character. Um, the daughter who Hoffman carried out at the end of, I think it was the fourth movie, uh, she could have been, I mean, that could have also tied into the, you know, the twist with uh, Dr. Gordon's character, because we'll, we'll get into that. I don't, don't want to jump to that. But yeah, to your point, I mean, again, it just, it's, they miss the mark really badly, even though the idea is good. And it just continues this narrative of who the hell are these people? Like, do I, should I know them? And then it just brings back more questions instead of you actually focusing on whatever it is they're trying to show us. Um, so yeah, not to beat a dead horse, but I, I would concur with what you just said there. Yeah. And I guess that I'm curious, like, how did you find Jill and Hoffman's narrative that's playing as the background essentially to Bobby kind of like finally finding himself in an actual jigsaw trap. What did you think of sort of their relationship, how that evolves, the directions it goes in and generally how that narrative culminates into the final act uh, of this film? Um, I just, if you just put it as a standalone of Mark Hoffman against Jill Tuck and, and then you have whatever, uh, Officer Gibson, who's a complete fucking moron in this, <laughs> but like <laughs> he's pretty atrocious. And by the way, the again acting it was really like this is probably the worst acted film, which is a testament actually because there are yeah. actors in. in <laughs> um, but yeah, again, I I think if you just take that as a standalone, there is something interesting there. Um, so yeah, you know that them just having their own standalone narrative would have been interesting, uh, at least to an effect, I think. The issue was when you actually get to the ending with the twist, it it literally completely ruins the movie because it actually then makes no fucking sense. So I think, again, I appreciate where they're trying to go because, you know, we mentioned this in previous reviews, whatever we're seeing there's always an undercurrent narrative that we're not maybe privy to until the ending of it right same exact scenario in this case except that undercurrent narrative literally just it it, honestly it, it if you really think about it it can ruin the entire series for you because then none of what happens with hoffman's character or jill tuck's character make any fucking sense so um while again i I certainly appreciate where they were trying to go with it. It was very uh, poorly actually executed. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it further just exposes not only the really poor acting in this, but just how bad the writing is, right? Because it gets to the point where Hoffman survives the reverse bear trap that Jill tries to kill him with from the previous film. And then Jill immediately goes to the cops and is looking for uh, immunity and protective custody and all these things. And the cop who's uh, played by Chad Danella, uh, who plays Officer Gibson, who's like the lead detective or whatever, who is so overstated at every single juncture. Like everything he says is overstated and over the top. And he said he's got such hot lines as like, in this house, you have to you have to pay to play or something like we're not just going to give you immunity unless you give us everything first or whatever. They have this stupid fucking standoff with one another. And then she says, oh, uh, Hoffman is the jigsaw serial killer. All of a sudden, he believes everything she says after going on this tirade about how he won't believe anything she says and how she's a liar and how she's involved. And she's like, well, no, it was Hoffman. He goes, holy shit, we got to get her into a safe house and all this stuff. And it's just like completely uh, turns on a dime and just completely goes against everything he said right from the jump. And 
it's the type of thing where it's just like it's it's so erratic in the ways that characters behave and react in the decision making that it's impossible to take any character seriously i mean especially gibson though like he has this whole tirade about how the safe house is the only safe place for her, it's the most safe place in the world or some nonsense and then literally like 10 seconds after he gives her that speech hoffman sends a dvd like addressed to the safe house and it's just like what the fuck like it's comedic and it, i'm not sure if it's supposed to be but it definitely comes off that way um in a way that you're just like we got a lot of entertainment out of watching this over beers but not for the reasons that they probably wanted us to yeah no i, I would agree with you and uh, this is maybe too much of a personal attack on him, but he really does look like a Chad. Um, yeah, he really does. <laughs> he checks that box off. Um, yeah, I mean, I, again, I certainly do appreciate the fact that there was a little bit of a, uh, a, a head fake there where uh, Jill Tuck has this dream, basically, where she's captured by Hoffman. Uh, and he kills her in one of the more gory ways possible, except the ending where you actually see her dead body and it looks like, I mean, it looks like a fucking carnival, you know, yeah. or something like that. It just doesn't look like a real death scene, um, mm-hmm. whereas it could have if they had done it correctly. Um, that contraption, where was it, a chainsaw that he like puts on tra- uh, train wheels basically and pushes him yeah it was basically like a reverse guillotine where it's lying uh, horizontal instead and so it just goes and it severs her in half because it's running on these train tracks and whatnot and yeah like like you had said it's interesting that they were displaying it as a dream obviously and that was a little surprising i guess but it's so undercut by the fact that that kill looks preposterous like it's the for starters it's brightly it's a brightly lit scene so it's further revealing just how bad the practical effects actually are to the degree where you're like why even include that other than to say that this is like one of the kills in the film or whatever and i mean again it that really does kind of trickle down to every single kill in the film and i guess i looked it up it says that there's 20 the body count for the movie is 27 which is higher than any of the other ones but how many of those are actually memorable like maybe three yeah and even then they're memorable not always because of the practical effects but just because of the unplanned comedy uh nature of them right it's just it's pure comedy at a certain point where it's this idea that it's just like yeah we're laughing because of how bad the practical like even if we had been able to watch this in 3d which we weren't I can't imagine that any of these things would look even better. Like, it would just be a worse looking version right in your face. If essentially, like, yeah, okay, getting that closer to me is not going to make me appreciate it more. So this idea that, again, they're making all these concessions for 3D at the cost of making the movie look worse than anything that's come before it. And if this really were to be the final chapter, which it isn't, then you're leaving people with like a sour memory of the franchise, right? If, I guess if you were going to end a franchise, you always want to end on a bang and make it as memorable and a love letter, all the things that came before it and all these things. But in this, it's like they decide to look at the worst parts of the series and culminate it into a 90 minute film rather than taking the best bits or the most creative bits or the goriest bits even. You know, honestly, the, the more we talk about this, the more this kind of reminds me of the Game of Thrones ending. What? <laughs> Uh, directors were um, was it a Star Wars movie or a Star Trek series that they were trying to jump into after Game of Thrones and essentially they rushed the last two seasons and we got that jumbled mess this kind of reminds me of that in the sense that again the director it, the more we talk about this and again the, the more I think about it, they just he really didn't want to do this it seems like and it very much reflected in that and I, I'm glad that they did make follow-up movies because again if the end <laughs> is how it is with uh, well again we, we won't jump too far ahead to that effect but it really butchers the last six movies I mean the first movie still stands alone as one of the I think iconic horror movies at least 21st century um, certainly the way that this finishes if that would be the storyline it's just a gargantuan failure yeah, and it's disappointing again, and you can definitely see little glimmers of what it could have been. Like one of the most inventive traps, I think, in the entire film, and 
honestly, maybe an element that could have really been the best, one of the best traps in the entire franchise is this one where essentially Bobby's game is all about him saving people that haven't been enabling him to tell this lie and everything like that. Or basically people that have been helping him gain fame off this lie. So it's like his agent, his publicist. And then one of the traps is his publicist has a key basically on a rope. The key is down in her guts basically. And she's in this contraption where every time she makes noise, these needles move closer and closer to her neck. And so granted, pulling the key out makes her scream. Every time she screams, they get closer and closer and closer. That's really inventive, I think, right? This idea that you're being tortured and yet the more you make noise, the more you're sealing your own fate to be killed and skewered, essentially. I thought that was really inventive and really creative based on where we were at so far with this movie. But then the writing and especially Bobby's performance, uh, Sean Patrick Flannery's performance, is just, it hams it up so much to a comical level that I can't imagine watching dailies of this and be like, yeah, we got that scene. Like, he's like pleading with her not to make noise, which initially you're like, yeah, please don't make noise. I don't want you to get skewered. Like, this is for your own good type thing. But then he starts shouting stuff like, please, please, please shut the fuck up. And then she dies eventually because, right, she's screaming the entire time. And then he has like this tantrum where he's like, why wouldn't you shut the fuck up? Like screaming at this dead bloodied woman who he's had a relationship with and all this stuff. And it's like, how do you watch this and not find this comical? Or it's, I guess I keep saying it's comedic, but it really is just disappointing, especially because at this point they didn't know that they were going to move on with the series. And it's disappointing that this is what was given or this was what was presented as being the final chapter, a bookend to a series that has had some really high points, but this film seems just to capitalize on all the low points, unfortunately. Um, were there any other kills in this that stood out to you? Because if I'm being honest, I'm going to skip over a bunch of these because they don't necessarily do a whole lot for me. I would say the only two others that we haven't mentioned yet, uh, well, I guess the actual way that Jill dies. Um, mm, yep. But to be fair, the other two are just more satisfying than anything else. Uh, uh, Bobby's wife, how she gets thrown into that giant oven, essentially. And she, um, how, uh, how that drug dealer dies in the second movie, very mm. similar to how uh, Bobby's wife dies in that sense, right? Um, the other... The one that I find just most satisfying was the um, the Breaking Bad esque death of uh, <laughs> character. Yeah. Which again, if you look at it from an actual saw perspective, makes no fucking sense because it wasn't like he was warned not to go there; he was entrapped, which right. is kind of the opposite of what this is supposed to be like. Right? There's supposed to be a way, in theory, to get out of these or mm -hmm. warn the character on um so in that sense it was really a satisfying death just because he does get his just completely chest you know ripped <laughs> bullets but it didn't make any sense why that scenario actually played out and then more importantly the SWAT guys that end up dying basically trying to find Bobby they're like on a separate floor or whatnot mm -hmm. just again it, it it starts to go away from what Saw is and it just becomes a gore fest, which again, in theory, it's that's what we're supposed to be looking at in a seventh film, but mm -hmm. not in this kind of way that they present it. Yeah, you know, the whole adversarial relationship with Hoffman and uh, Detective Gibson, I mean, it, again, why wouldn't they just, if they're going to bring somebody back, they should have brought somebody back to be his nemesis, right? Somebody we thought was dead and whatnot, like, Clearly, this series has kind of just thrown out logic in a lot of ways, and it would have been better if it had at least been somebody from the previous films rather than this new character. And then they just kind of very inorganically create this nemesis uh, tension between them and whatnot to the degree that we ate, we just don't give a fuck, like don't care when he gets killed. I'm like, yeah, that sucks, I guess. But then it has no sort of like there's no cathartic uh cathartic moment for Gibbs or Hoffman, right? Because it's like, sure, he killed this guy that he's had a shit relationship with, but we only learned about their relationship 15 minutes ago or something like that before he got killed. So there's not much for us to chew on with that. Uh, I will say one of my favorite scenes in the movie, only because again, it is so comical, is that Hoffman goes on yet another police station rampage <laughs> where he's just stabbing people and all that. He infiltrates it by hiding in a body bag. 
He's stabbing all these cops that apparently have had no training. He's shooting everybody. Like, it's just so over the top and a complete retreading on what he did in Saw. Fuck, which one was that? Four or five? It doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> but it's just a retread and it's even more ridiculous now because it's like, sure, he's not going to kill two or three cops this time. It's going to be six or something. So it's kind of just building upon, again, these moments that they've had previously, but also it's a worse iteration of it because it's just like, yeah, we know it's this series has always been believable, but now it is undeniably unbelievable in terms of just like how far they're willing to take all these different things. Um, but I guess we should get into the twist of the film, which again is more about just like them taking advantage of the fact that they have all these random cameos that don't actually serve much of a greater purpose and like you had said it kind of further reveals that they've kind of just they've either underdeveloped all these things or that's just not thought out all that well right and the big twist is, is that dr gordon has actually been a jigsaw accomplice the entire time which i und- so this is the thing like from that angle i like the brief flashback that they show because it does explain how Jigsaw had all this medical expertise to do the traps throughout the course of the films, right? And so I didn't mention that. Gordon has been an accomplice since the first film. After the events of that, moving on, he was helping him with all the traps and whatnot, which it makes sense how people were getting keys and all this shit sewn into them and weren't getting infections and weren't dying, basically, because Jigsaw didn't have medical experience and um, his accomplice didn't have a lot of medical experience either his old accomplice rather um but it's the type of thing though where what is the incentive here for dr gordon why is dr gordon being uh been convinced basically to help him other than if jigsaw was threatening his family still which seems unlikely right the idea that people join jigsaw is that they are appreciative of the fact that he saved their life essentially or he's taken them in and given them a purpose and all these things but Dr. Gordon was just having an affair. Like, he didn't really learn a lesson from what happened to him other than like, I guess I'm not gonna have another affair or else I'll have to cut my own leg off or something, right? It doesn't have the same impact that the original accomplice had, which was like, she was a drug addict. He showed her a way to find a new appreciation of life or whatever. That I can stomach a little bit more than Dr. Gordon being like, yeah, I guess I'm just gonna become an accomplice because I survived or something or other. Like. It doesn't have the same impact and it feels so ham-fisted in and retconning of our understanding of that character that you can't not just kind of like roll your eyes at it. Yeah, I mean, so I would fully agree to what you said about the medical aspect of it because I actually didn't really account that in. That is the only thing that I will give them credit for. Everything else, like uh, he, he tried to kill Dr. Gordon's family. Right. How the fuck are you going to be like, all right, yeah, man, that totally made... It's not he just tried to kill him and you get, he tried to kill his wife and his kid. On top of that, you have flashbacks to where Jill and Amanda are working together. How the fuck right. did they not know that Dr. Gordon was a part of it? Especially since Amanda was literally the one that was responsible in theory for killing him and in, in uh, that other gentleman in the first movie. Uh, so... You look at that, there's flashbacks to him working with Hoffman then. So there was basically four separate people that were helping Jigsaw. It would be Jill Tuck, Hoffman, Amanda, and now Dr. Gordon. But none of them really understood that each one was working together. I mean, there are brief moments. I think it was in the third or fourth movie where you see Hoffman and Amanda together. How the fuck right. do they not know that it's, you know what I mean? So it just, right. there's so many questions that then th- get thrown out and it it's just completely half-assed. If they had mm. done more, and again, you know, I, I keep referencing it, that undercurrent narrative, if they had given a little bit, uh, a few more Easter eggs throughout the movies, uh, the, for, throughout the franchise rather, then I would have been able to stomach it more because then you could look back and be like, holy shit, that makes sense, or to your point, these random objects have been sewn into people. How the fuck didn't they die? But you don't get that. You get like a five second scene where he's like, 
you know, yes, I accept your apology. Let's work together. And then all of a sudden he's like sewing a couple people. <laughs> right. And we're supposed to believe that he's been doing this for the past six fucking movies. I mean, <laughs> he left like a, it, that, that particularly really annoyed me. I think that was the biggest, that's probably the biggest fuck up of the entire franchise so far. Yeah. And you know, I don't even consider it fan service really. Just because, I, well, it is fan service because they're bringing him back, but it's not a good example of good fan service, I don't think. Because they're bringing him back in a way that, again, is so ham-fisted that it doesn't work, really, like you had said, to your point. If you think about it for more than 30 seconds, you're like, well, here's why this doesn't work or why this doesn't fit. And so, again, like I like the idea of it being the medical justification for uh, how all these things have happened. But if you're going to introduce him it would not be much more expensive for them to shoot a few more scenes where they digitally impose him into scenes with those other characters, right? They're already spending $17 million. They've decided to add a, an element that's not really going anywhere in a lot of ways. Like they thought this was the final film. It's mostly a marketing gimmick saying it's in 3D. Why not fucking a, a few more weeks of editing, maybe an extra $2 million. You're already almost a 20. You might as well kind of get it there. And then superimpose him into digital, digitally superimpose him into scenes that give more context for what, uh, his involvement, basically. And so to not do that and just to have like these one-on-one -on -one scenes and these like one-on-one -on -one flashbacks or just just him working uh, in flashbacks, I really didn't appreciate or didn't find actually added much to the film at all. Um, but I think also, I mean, probably the greatest sin though of this entire film is is that. Jigsaw is in probably three minutes. We get a total of three minutes of Tobin Bell. And yeah, it was, of course, it had to be in a flashback just because he's been dead. But the scene that they give us again, like whether it's intentional or not, is just comical without them even saying anything. Like it reminded me of um, that meme that has Steve Buscemi in it from some show where he's got like a skateboard and he's dressed like a teen. And it's him saying like, how do you do fellow kids? Because it's Tobin Bell and he's dressed like the front runner for Limp Biscuit or something. Like he's got this a backwards ball cap. He's got baggy jeans and a baggy gray sweatshirt. And he's just kind of like standing there at a book signing. And it's this type of thing where you're like, this looks funny before he's even said anything. Of course, Tobin Bell being Tobin Bell, he's mastered this character. His few lines of dialogue are just as menacing as ever. It's great to, of course, see him once again. But at the same time, it's this thing where you're like, okay. This is a completely missed opportunity to give him a proper send-off. This film was never going to have a major reveal like Jigsaw's still alive or anything like that. That would just kind of be like giving yourself false hope. At the same time, you have to give the titlier villain of the film the fucking credit and the, the comeuppance that he's due, essentially. Like, you have to send him off in a way that is unforgettable. That is unforgettable is the first time we actually got to see him, which was the first film when he stands up at the end. Like, nobody will ever forget that moment. And to not bookend the moment on that is such a missed opportunity. I mean, what did you think of the final scene of the movie and the way that it ends? I certainly, I mean, I would agree with you. I didn't like it. I, the fact that they're beating the shit out of Hoffman, that's the one that you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I certainly, I think the way that these movies start portraying the characters you understood that dr gordon wasn't just going to be in two fucking scenes and then he was going to be gone for the rest of the movie he was going to play some role in in the ending of it um i don't recall who the other two accomplices were that were beating hoffman up i'm glad you brought that up that's actually something that they got cut out of the film mm -hmm. they were supposed to reveal that it was the two guys from the very first trap the ones that survived so it was supposed to be that once they have that like slut shaming trap those two get recruited again like the there's such a flimsy justification for why any of these people would become jigsaw accomplices like what jigsaw they're endowed to jigsaw now because he revealed that this woman they were both dating was cheating on them like it it doesn't make any fucking sense again it kind of is just such a misunderstanding of the crucial relationship from the first three films between uh, I believe, was it Amanda? Yeah, Amanda and uh, Jigsaw, right? Like, there's that 
father-daughter kind of relationship bond thing there where she clearly didn't have a good upbringing and all these things and then she's an addict he helped her kick her habit finally and it's one of those things where it's like that is a at least believable right a, a lot of things have to happen in a specific order for us to arrive at that but it at least makes sense and you can at least buy into it whereas with this like again the justification for these people joining the ranks of jigsaw don't make any sense and they're flimsy at best if that yeah no i would agree with you. i mean I appreciate to some small extent where they were trying to go. Mm -hmm. but it And again, it just the theme of this movie, um, you know, instead of the final chapter, it should be called the failed execution or something like that. <laughs> every fucking way of like actually executing on what they were trying to accomplish. Um, and that's I think that's why this ends up being the worst uh, film of the entire franchise. Yeah, you know, I feel pretty confident in labeling it as such, too, and I haven't seen Spiral yet, uh, but I feel pretty confident in labeling it as as such, just because, again, it feels like such a misunderstanding of what makes Saw not the best, fran not one of the best uh, horror franchises out there, but what makes it a standout in terms of certain elements of it, right? It's, it has an identity that, at the time, was all its own. And this just feels like the most bare-bones understanding of what made previous films work. It's also super disappointing because Grudert's last film was Saw 6, and I enjoyed that film immensely, and I believe you enjoyed it definitely more than 5 and 6, if I'm not mistaken. 5 and 4, you mean? Uh, 5 and 4, yeah. And just, again, like, the film ends on, like, another game overline, which is so poorly delivered by Carrie Ellis, and... Also, like, he develops a British accent for the second half of the film, which was weird. Like, he does an American accent in the course of not only the first film, but then the first half of uh, the final chapter. And then by the end of the movie, he's just doing his uh, his regular British accent. And it's like, now we're, like, jumping around. Did they have to do reshoots or something? And he was just fucking fed up. Uh, it was just very strange. But... I think it is telling that as much as we have lambasted this film, and obviously it was a critical failure, this movie was a monumental success uh, in terms of making its budget back tenfold almost. I mean, it, again, 17 to 20 million uh, dollar budget I'm seeing, and it made 136 million dollars at the box office. Again, it's not a surprise why they went on to continue the series after the final chapter. That's kind of always been the recurring thing going all the way back to uh, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, part four and whatnot. Like, yeah. These movies prove that they are monumentally successful, and so if you label it as such, people will go and see it, and then you realize, like, well, we're not going to put this cash cow down because there's still money to be milked out of this. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. I mean, I, I, I imagine. Well, eight, I think, is better. We will that that's yet to be seen. I guess uh, for, we'll get to that for our reviews. But I haven't seen Spiral. I know that you have, from my understanding. I know that there was. Oh, you haven't seen Spiral? Man. No, so I've seen Jigsaw a couple of years ago, but I have never seen Spiral. So I'm excited to revisit Jigsaw just because I don't remember it being atrocious. I just remember it being like exactly what I thought Saw was always about, which is just like these gratuitous traps and whatnot that didn't necessarily blow me away with the story or the characters, but I don't remember it being as bad as the final chapter. Yeah, no, I would, I mean, again, I'll knock on wood for us, I, I imagine. <laughs> um, but it'll be interesting to tackle that in Spiral. I'm, I'm sure we're going to have a, a little bit more positive takeaways than, than we have from uh, the final chapter here. It wouldn't be very hard, but uh, as always, Bernie, it's a pleasure having you on to talk uh, Saw and horror in general. I appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to, I'm, I'm glad that you're back first off, but very much looking forward to finishing out this series and, and chatting more, man. Absolutely. Hopefully uh, we'll end the series on a higher note than this, but uh, I look forward to chatting about those movies in the uh, near future with you. Appreciate it, man. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next time.